Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, July 25th, 2008. This week, episode 90 comes to you from beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. It's always a pleasure to Good do it. Good afternoon, Cliff. And the wingman, Chris Boisel, is at the, at the controls again. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Chris. It looks like we have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on the line with us. Let's say hello to Dieter real quick. We have a new... Uh, oh. Good afternoon, Dieter. Hi. I don't recognize the music, but you guys are lucky. I hurt my right knee, and I don't play tennis, so I'm on the show. All okay. right. Good to have you. Who's that? What, what was it? Mozart. Oh, that's some Mozart there, Dieter. I don't know. We'll have to play you a longer, longer clip the next time. Maybe Mozart. you'll pick it up. But that, uh, that loudspeaker in my telephone is uh. not of the quality that I have for my uh, uh, music systems. I understand. We'll, we'll bring you back in at halftime, then again on the roundup. Thanks for joining us. That's right. Okay. Today's segments include the micro band trivia question. We've got Ron and Jody Papa from the president. Uh, Ron's the president of National Fire Adjustment, and Jody works at their Buffalo office. We will then have the IE Connections, What's News, with Mr. Glenn Fellman. Good to have him back this week. And the Roundtable, where we bring everyone back to round things up. We've been working on that IAQRadio.com website, adding a blog every week and uh, updating things. And before we get started, we've got to thank our sponsors. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right, to contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547, and then you just have to hit the number 1 to join the show. You can stream the show through the Internet. You can download the show later with or without the TalkShoe software. You can text in questions, and or you can just go to the iaqradio.com site and hit go to the show. 
We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions or take requests if you email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliff at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Don't forget you can get those hard-to-get IICRC continuing education credits, especially the mold credits, since the Z-Man's one of the instructors on the the mold uh, issues. Uh, We can also get you some IAQ console renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email again is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn this over to the Z-Man for this week's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Okay, uh, congratulations go out to Matt Friedrichson. Uh, he's one of the trivia masters. He got last week's question. Uh, the correct, or I guess the question dealt with anaphylaxis and the treatment for it, what you're supposed to get. That, that would be epinephrine, an EpiPen uh, was the correct answer. Okay, the microband trivia question for Friday, July 25th, 2008, comes to us from the entertainment field. Today's question is, what on-screen profession did actors Ronald Reagan and Woody Allen have in common? All right. Thank you, Cliff. Okay. All right. Matt's got some... uh, I got the lucky dollars. I brought them this week. Now we have to get his address and get them out. I've got ten lucky dollars for Matt. Good job on the uh, trivia quizzes. Thanks for that. Okay. Let's get on with the introduction of our guest today. Ron Papa is an SPPA. He's also the president of National Fire Adjustment, the largest public adjusting firm in the United States and Canada. NFA has served over 40,000 customers and adjusted claims worth hundreds of millions of dollars since being formed in 1922. Ron has been instrumental in NFA's growth over the past 25 years. He has successfully adjusted several thousand insured losses working for a wide range of clients since 1971. Ron earned the prestigious designation of a senior professional public adjuster and he is accredited by the National Association of Public Insurance Adjusters of which he is the past president. He was named person of the year by the NAPIA in 1996 for outstanding leadership. Ron is approved as an instructor by the numerous state depart, uh, state insurance departments, including, the, and he's also a New York State Bar Association approved and a Society of CPAs. And he graduated from Niagara University in 1974. We also have his daughter, Jody, who works out of the Buffalo office with us here today. She's also a Niagara University uh, graduate and is also one of the uh, public adjusters licensed in the state of New York, which I didn't know you had to be. Right, and she's been doing it since 2001. How about their intro music? Intro music. Burned out house down on 38th Street. Room after room full of nightmare heat. And everything changed to a charcoal gray. What was gathered
Welcome, Ron and Jody. Well, your company has a really fascinating history. Can you tell us a little bit about why your grandfather or great-grandfather started the company? Sure. Uh, he started it back in 1922, where he was a uh, an insurance broker uh, part-time, and he also uh, had a uh, another job as well. And the, uh, one of his clients had a loss and it was a sizable claim, and it was uh, referred to a public adjuster. And my, uh, my grandfather thought that that was rather uh, intriguing. Matter of fact, he asked the other adjuster, how do you get into this business? And he said that it was awfully complicated to be able to do, and that uh, motivated my uh, grandfather to explore it all, all the more. And he then decided to uh, quit the other job that he had and opened up his uh, a, a business in the Buffalo area on a, uh, a regular basis. You know, how far back does the history of public adjusting go? Well, uh, we're able to uh, trace it back in the United States to uh, 1988. I'm sorry, 1888. 1888. Wow. And, uh, prior, and prior to that, it actually started in uh, England, and it started uh, shortly after the insurance industry started, where the uh, insurance industry would employ their own adjusters to represent owners where they have insurance claims. And the uh, policyholders uh, saw a need to uh, level the playing field so that they would have their own adjuster uh, representing them. So does it, are there other countries as well? I'm just curious, does, is this common around the world? I know England and the United States and Canada have these public adjusters. Is it common in other you know, uh, developed countries? Yes, it's uh, also in uh, uh, Australia, it's in South Africa. Uh, we received some recent correspondence from other uh, public adjusters in uh, Puerto Rico, in uh, Bermuda, and uh, other areas. But I would say uh, that it's not all that common throughout the world, but it, but it is uh, uh, relatively common in the uh, developed uh, nations. You know, can we just get some definitions? Can you explain to the listeners the different types of adjusters and who they would work for? Either, either you or Jody, either yeah, one, whoever yeah. wants to jump in here. Sure. Okay, well, uh, why don't I do one, and then we'll hand it off to Jody. Great. There's, sure. there's one that's what's called a staff adjuster, and that individual is an employee of an insurance company. And you'll often find that these uh, sometimes larger insurance companies uh, will employ their own individuals to handle losses. And quite often the direct writers, whether it's the Allstate, State Farm, Nationwide, carriers like that, will have their own employees handle the losses. Uh, they're called staff adjusters, and in most jurisdictions, they do not need to be licensed. In Florida and places like that, they do, but in most states, they do not need to be licensed. Now, even if they do have staff adjusters, they may uh, uh, interact with an independent adjuster because of the geography of the losses in an area where, where they don't have a staff adjuster nearby, or if the loss is uh, sophisticated enough or involved enough that they uh, may want to hire somebody with special expertise to act as uh, an independent contractor. Okay, Jody, what would a independent adjuster be? Huh? An independent adjuster is hired by the insurance company. They don't necessarily work directly for them, but they are hired by the insurance com uh, company to work for them to also adjust um, in, the, in the law. It's kind of like a staff adjuster, as my father mentioned. However, they don't work directly for the insurance company. So they'd be like a subcontractor. Would that be accurate? Yes. 
Okay. What about a, well, when it, I, I guess when an insurance company says no to a claim, does that always mean they won't pay for it? No, uh, 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 not at all. It's possible that they've denied a claim just because they don't have all the facts, and it's uh, very often our, our job to investigate to see what caused the claim, what caused the loss, uh, work within the four corners of the insurance policy to see if we're able to find coverage, and then quite often you may have honest differences as to the issue of uh, causation. I happen to recall a loss years ago that we handled for a, a Jewish community center where a swimming pool uh, blew out of the ground and the insurance company denied the loss because they said it was caused by flood or hydrostatic pressure and that was ex excluded under the insurance policy. When we went out there, we saw that the spigot to have uh, the swimming pool uh, filled with water was turned and there was no water in the pool itself because it was being cleaned. So we were able to establish that it was actually caused by vandals who turned the spigot, which caused the water to go around the ground since the approximate cause of the loss was vandalism, and vandalism was a covered peril under this policy, then the ensuing loss was covered. So there's a, a pretty good case where an insurance company originally denied the loss based on the, on the facts that they had, which sounded logical. But once we got involved and did our own investigation, we were able to show that the proximate cause was vandalism, which is covered, and therefore the loss was covered in the policy. I see. Okay, now, and I'm curious, before we go any further, we didn't really go into what a public adjuster is, I guess. I guess we should define that. We've been talking about mm -hmm. it quite a bit. Jody, can you tell us what a public adjuster is and who you typically work for? Sure. A uh, public adjuster is hired by the insured. Um, they work, they're an advocate for the policyholder. Um, each state has its own requirements on licensing for a public adjuster, but most states do require that we are licensed by that in particular state. Um, there are strict rules and regulations in regards to a public adjuster with licensing. Um, like I said, we are an advocate for the policyholder. And it's kind of like an account preparing the taxes for uh, for an individual, uh, we prepare the insurance claim for them, and we, you know, work on behalf of the policyholder. Well, our insurance. And, 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 go ahead, Ron. No, I, I, I was just going to add, in, in, in order to to obtain a license, uh, there's very often an examination we have to pass, there's bonding we have to go through. Uh, many states require uh, education on an ongoing basis, and uh, it's a rather uh, involved process. I'm curious, do are insurance companies required to tell a policyholder what they might pay in the event of a claim? I mean, can they legally hide things from you, I guess? Well, I, I don't know. You know, uh, when you say hide, if there's certain things that they know that they're, that they're deceptive about, that's one thing. But it's not their obligation to, to divulge all that they know or to look at a loss creatively. Like uh, an example might be, uh, your house burns and you were going to have a party that weekend at the house. So now you can't have it. So if you were to have it out of the restaurant, that would be covered under your living expenses minus what it would cost you to have that party at your own home. Now, whether an insurance company adjuster would volunteer that information to you, I would think that most of them probably wouldn't. But, but they ought not lie and say it's not covered, but it's not their uh, duty to volunteer uh, that uh, uh, information to, to the policyholder. 
each individual is representing their own client. And as we said before, the, the independent adjuster or staff adjuster have a job to do, and it's their job to represent the insurance company, whereas we're licensed to be an advocate, as Jody indicated, and we're licensed to be a representative of the insured. So it's our job to be formulating the laws as if it were our own property, whereas the insurance company adjuster is looking at it in terms of when they're doling out money, they're looking at it as if the money is out of their own pocket. You know, would you... Also sometimes... Sorry, go, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Go ahead, Jody. Um, also sometimes within the insurance policy, there's also additional coverage that the insured may not know about. And sometimes the insurance company does not volunteer that information up as well. I'm assuming sometimes, too, the the insurance adjuster that works for the, like, independents may or may not know the policy as well as, as you would expect. Yeah, it's also uh, an excellent point because uh, Jody and I and other public adjusters only really deal in first-party property claims, whereas the, the staff adjuster, independent adjuster, may not only handle property losses, but may also handle liability claims, workers' comp, auto accidents, et cetera. So uh, they may require a wider array of knowledge in different fields, whereas Jody and I and our firm has the luxury of being focused in just that one narrow aspect of insurance. You know, with all the advertising on television with attorneys saying if you've been injured in an accident or been injured at work, you know, hire an attorney, call me, and they give their 800 numbers and, and so on and so forth. Is it common for the policyholder's first inclination in the event of an insurance claim or problems with their insurance company to call their attorney? And is that a good idea or not a good idea? Attorneys are uh, very helpful and, and a, a great uh, bit of information and to help you, you know, guide you through that. We do do a lot of work with attorneys. Um, actually, a lot of attorneys refer us to their clients to help them out. Um, attorneys sometimes know that they, they are not specialized in um, adjusting a loss, and they know that we are, so they do refer their clients to us. You know, if I was an insurance adjuster, should I, and, I, and I'm an ethical insurance adjuster, of course, should I look for ways in the policy and facts of the loss to, number one, cover a loss or to pay more on a loss? I would think that there's an a underlining uh, rule that the insured is entitled to the benefit of the doubt. So when you're uh, looking at the facts and circumstances, if there's a reasonable way to find coverage, then it ought to be afforded. Of course, if a loss is not covered, if a loss is excluded, or a loss just isn't owed for whatever reason, then uh, of course the loss ought not be paid. But I would think in the event of a jump ball, uh, the insured is entitled to the benefit of the doubt. Which are the most difficult types of losses to, to get a fair settlement on? Well, uh, there are all various uh, aspects of it. Uh, one of the areas that we have expertise in as well as in uh, loss of uh, income claims or the, uh, used to be referred to as business interruption losses. So that's probably the most, the most nebulous area because it's the hardest to try to quantify as to what are, the, what are the trends of the business, what expenses would they had had the loss not have occurred, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's one of the things that's quite interesting. The other thing that happens, though, when you have a, a loss and you have uh, 
smoke in the building, uh, quite often uh, the insurance company or their contractors, they want to look at it in, in uh, terms of what just needs to be washed versus washed or painted or what needs to be replaced. Or if you have items of furnishings, let's say, where they all need to be cleaned, but maybe the insured didn't want that couch any longer or wasn't going to wear all those suits that were up in the closet. But one of the things that uh, we would try to do is, of course, get them paid. They have that work done, and then if the insured decides to use that money elsewhere or use that money to replace the items, uh, they certainly uh, have that right. So in most losses, uh, there are honest differences of opinion as to what's owed under the policy, as to the uh, amount that's owed. And uh, these are aspects of the loss where we're able to uh, help the insured to be certain that they recover everything that they're entitled to. I also run into the problem with um, broad evidence claims where um, insurance companies want to bring in market value as a factor. Um, I know, you know, within Buffalo, there's houses on the east side that don't have a very good market value. And when they have a substantial loss where their house burns to the ground and they do have an insurance policy for, say, $150,000, the insurance company is not uh, willing to pay out $150 because the house is not worth that today. So they are bringing uh, market value into that equation, which is a huge factor for us. And that's where you'd be able to help out an insured as opposed to, you know, just hoping, I guess, pretty much you're pretty much hoping that exactly. the insurance company treats you properly. Exactly. Uh, okay. Let me ask a question. Um, Ron, you were talking briefly about, you know, fire. I assume a lot of your claims are on fires. And I had a text question that came in before the show that the person who generally listens can't join us today but he asked me to relay this question to you the ria and um, the ieso the indoor environmental standards organization are cooperating on writing a new fire standard for the industry uh, for restoration contractors and he was curious if there was anything in particular that that you as a public adjuster felt should be included in a fire standard for the industry that would help with, you know, settling these types of claims a little more easily? Not offhand, but if he had a draft of what he was doing and he wanted, it to, and he wanted us to run it by ourselves as, as well as other members of the uh, National Association of Public Insurance Adjusters, we'd be uh, very happy to do that. But it is something that we welcome uh, because there needs to be standards and uh, 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 protocols uh, determined as to how this ought to be done. The worst thing that could happen is that you have an area that's clean where the smoke resonates back in after the fact or the or the home or business that's cleaned after a small fire in January, you think everything is fine, and then you have a very humid day in August where the owners are calling you back and they have the issue with smoke again. Those are the worst areas because now walls may have to be uh, reopened, uh, uh, cavities examined, items like that. And it's always a lot less expensive to remedy the problem first than trying to go in after the fact to uh, uh, solve it. Where in my homeowner's insurance policy or my business property insurance policy do the words lowest price, competitive bid, or get three estimates? Well, you can go through the policy from, from the first page to the last page and you can do a search of all the words in there as well. And you'll find that they do not exist in any insurance policy that I've ever seen. 
and uh, quite often that terminology or get three estimates as a, a fallacy, uh, same way you hear about like the act of God not being covered. Mm -hmm. That has to do with a, uh, a liability issue. But it's not the lowest rate, it's the going prevailing rate. What's the reasonable rate to have the work done? Not just what one contractor is willing to do it for, because, and, and Jody, maybe you want to explain about the woman that tried to handle the loss on her own and then called you back after the fact, where the insurance company uh, recommended a contractor. They went out there, and halfway through the process, he walked off the job. And uh, his his bid was low. Uh, he came in with a very low bid, and now the con the insurance company is saying he, this particular contractor agreed to do it for this, for X amount of dollars. That's all we're paying. And if she wants to bring in another contractor, that's fine. If their bid is higher, that's great. Uh, but we're not going to pay her one dollar over what we've already agreed with this contractor. Anything above that needs to come out of her own pocket. And I'm currently still working on that loss, so I'm not able to give you a, a positive outcome, which, you know, we hope. But um, that's absolutely incorrect. The insurance company cannot do that. And um, if that particular contractor was low right now with, uh, with jobs, that's fine if he wants to bid a, a low bid. But, I mean, there's other contractors out there that are going to charge a reasonable amount, and she is entitled to that money. Well, what what happens when when you reach an impasse here? Do you do you have to bring in the attorneys and go to court, or do you just settle? I mean, I I'm not sure I've ever been in a situation where we you know re reached an impasse and didn't know what to do. Most of the states uh, have what's called a, most of the states and most of the insurance policies uh, have a clause called appraisal, where if you're not able to agree as to the amount of value or loss to the property and what's damaged, then either party is able to demand an appraisal where one side names their appraiser, the other side names a person to act as their appraiser. Those two appraisers now agree on an umpire, and it more or less goes off to a, a, a binding arbitration, if you will, where any time now two of the three agree, that's binding on the whole process. So that is normally a uh, relatively quick and relatively inexpensive way to try to resolve uh, differences. And uh, in particularly in Canada, uh, they end up going to appraisal almost all the time on a loss because there are such uh, big differences of opinion between uh, our claim and the insurance company's claim. So usually in Canada, they do end up going to appraisal. I really have a two-part question. Um, what would be considered good faith on the part of an insurance company and then what would be considered bad faith on the part of an insurance company? Well, uh, I would say the aspect of, of good faith is to send out a competent, qualified adjuster uh, very shortly after the loss to be able to uh, give the insured advice as to things that should be moved or cleaned, how to protect the property from further damage. Issue, issue to the insured a meaningful partial payment so that they're working with the insurance company's money uh, rather than their own. And in, in the proper process, try to help them uh, through the overall aspect of the claim. If the insured wants to hire their own adjuster, they ought not discourage them from doing that. They ought not try to uh, intimidate them from doing that and ought to proceed with the overall, overall process. I would think dealing in bad faith is when they try to hold money back 
to try to entice an insurer to settle or give up certain rights in lieu of them uh, uh, receiving money, uh, not pointing out to them various areas of insurance that they have. If the insurance company obtains an estimate of the damages that the insurance company thinks might hurt the insurance company's case, not giving that to the insured. If you bring out an engineer and the engineer thinks that this IP needs to go, then I would think they have a duty to pass that on to the, to the insured so the insured uh, has that information. And I think that it is a fiduciary responsibility where there needs to be utmost good faith in the overall process. And it's really not a fair contest because the insurance company has a lot more resources and a lot more staff and knowledge in their corner than the insured does and the average policyholder does. So I just think that they have a responsibility to not take advantage of, of their situation. Either one can answer this. I, I just came back. From, I was doing training in Baltimore. I want to first say hello to uh, Matt from the Cleaners Closet down there, and thanks for our hosting us. But while I was there, I also went to uh, a company called AM Restore, and they do contents restoration. And I know Barb Jackson's listening, so I wanted to get a contents question in here. They were restoring contents and, and a lot of electrical contents while we were down there, and it was from a fire job. And it just seemed to me like you could have bought the stuff they were cleaning really inexpensively, but they were cleaning it anyway. Is that something common, or what am I missing there? I couldn't quite figure out why they were cleaning that stuff. I can take one shot at it. You know, as a restorer, I don't think I would ever want to clean uh, something that the cleaning cost exceeded a fraction of replacement unless it was sentimental item and I sometimes I've seen cleaning companies get you know get carried away in terms of you know they make money by cleaning stuff and you know they're kind of running the meter it's like when you get into a cab well who makes that decision I mean who who makes the decision as to whether it gets cleaned or not Ron yeah what what normally happens and that's an excellent point I remember a loss where we didn't get hired on right away and it was a fax machine just a low-end residential fax machine that you could buy off the shelf for $125. And the keys were actually melted on the machine. And it was at a, a restoration firm being cleaned, which was just absolute lunacy. In the same place that they were, they had a, a computer keyboard that you can replace, as you're saying, for a relatively modest amount, you know, $25, $30, and it's being cleaned. It doesn't make any sense. But what happens there sometimes is that there isn't a dialogue between the insurance company and the restoration contractor and the insured or the insurance representative or adjuster or whoever they're going to have uh, as to what they're doing. And quite often the cleaner will tell the insurance company adjuster, we can clean everything in this room. And the insurance company adjuster may say, fine, then, then have at it. And if no one asks these questions, they're going to do it. And I don't know if you can really fault a restoration contractor because they're in the business of cleaning. So if they're going to have this cleaned, that's fine. But as you said, they're liable to expend more in cleaning than it's worth. I would think that the more uh, uh, reputable restoration contractor would say, wait a minute, you're really sure you want me to have this clean? This doesn't make any economic sense. So I think that's where it should start. The insurance company adjuster should, should, should question it. 
of course, the uh, public adjuster, if he or she's involved, is definitely going to question it, and the homeowner as well. And quite often, the homeowner doesn't think they have any say just because this is what the insurance company and the restoration contractor agreed to, and the average homeowner thinks that they're off on the sidelines and they're just watching this disaster happen and happen in slow motion. You know, one of the things that happens commonly is the policyholder only has a certain amount of money to, to spend, and oftentimes the amount they have to spend on the content side is a fraction of what they have on the building side. And the area where I've seen the biggest problems occur really occurs with dry cleaning. You know, in my closet at home, I have what I refer to as out-of-style clothes. <laughs> They're really not out of style. They just don't fit anymore because I've kind of gained all this weight. <laughs> and I think most people... Absolutely right. And I think most people have these situations, and it's not uncommon uh, in a disaster situation, particularly in fires, because uh, fire damage, smoke damage drives up the cost of dry cleaning dramatically. And one of the things that Ron said early on is it's really up to the policyholder to have that choice. Do they want to have out-of-style clothes cleaned, or would they rather have that cleaning money that they're entitled to and put it towards replacement or you know, put it to something else in the house? But that's one of the areas where I see a lot of problems and also where a lot of dissatisfaction occurs because when the customer gets back this dry cleaning bill, and, you know, that bill could be many thousands of dollars for cleaning clothes that are quote-unquote out of style and don't fit anymore. Uh, it can create just a, a lot of problems between people. But I think what we're going to do now is go to our break uh, in the middle, and we're going to bring on... IE Connections, IE What's Connections, News, What's Mr. News. Glenn Fellman. We've got a, we'll bring you back in just a minute, uh, and we're going to go to a little break. Ron and Jody will be right back. Right, our leader of men and women, Glenn Fellman. Do we have you on the line? Hey, Joe. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you today, Glenn? I'm excellent. Back Great from show, vacation. Huh? Oh, thanks. We're really enjoying this one. What's news uh, out in the IAQ world, Glenn? Well, I got a couple good stories for you today. We're going to start off and talk about eco-friendly marketing claims. Over the last couple of years, as the green building industry and the overall green movement has you know, taken over, everything suddenly is green and eco-friendly. Well, the Federal Trade Commission is getting involved now. The Federal Trade Commission, which is a government agency that enforces federal rules against unfair or deceptive marketing claims, it's stepping up its scrutiny of claims of environmental-friendly practices in the building and textile industry specifically. It's part of a 10-year a, a review that the FTC does of its uh, rules. They were last done in 1998, so they're being done now in 2008. They held the third in a series of public workshops last month, and they're expected to come out with some uh, new guidelines this year that will be very specific um, with regard to a lot of the types of products and um, green claims that we've been hearing within the indoor environmental community. It'll be very interesting to see whether these new guidelines affect the marketing claims and the marketing practices 
of a lot of the um, construction industry as well as cleaning, restoration, and indoor air quality industries. Sounds good. That's the first one for you. I got another good one here. Um, we've just learned that ASHRAE has cleared the final hurdle in getting the HVAC maintenance standard, better known as ASHRAE Standard 180, approved as an American national standard. This was a major initiative to establish consistency in the inspection and maintenance of HVAC systems, HVAC. And um, there was one final pending appeal, uh, and that has been rejected. It's been um, dealt with through their due process. And now uh, it's before the American National Standards Institute for approval. And my understanding is that uh, in a very short period of time, it could be days, we will be hearing an announcement that there is a new American National Standard for the maintenance of commercial air conditioning systems, which is huge news for our industry. Absolutely good stuff. I'm sure Bob Baker's a happy man, huh? He, he was... uh, yeah, he's the chairman of that committee. He's worked really hard on that, so absolutely. Got two more little things for you. One is, um, uh, I think, a kind of a big event in the world of, of, of microbiologists. Uh, Dr. Chin Yang, who I think a lot of people recognize that name. He was... Uh, considered a pioneer in, in microbial issues as long as maybe 20 years ago. He has uh, opened up a new lab with some partners in uh, New Jersey, and the uh, uh, company is called Prestige Enviromicrobiology. And um, Dr. Yang has been sort of quiet in the industry over the last few years. His, his company was sold to another company, and I think he had to sit on the sidelines for a little while and do some of the consulting work. But he's back in a big way, and I've seen some of their marketing coming out. It looks like it's kind of impressive. So uh, might be something to think about as far as the future show guest as well. We had a little him. late. We had him two weeks ago on that one, Glenn. And he made the announcement. Ah! <laughs> we, we scooped you. That's what happens when you go on vacation. Yeah. You on vacation, I buddy. I was at the beach. I couldn't get any internet connection. Uh, All right. You got uh, one more good one. I got one more good one for you. Um, the EPA is rolling out an upgraded version of an important environmental testing tool, and the tool is the Healthy School Environment Assessment Tool. It's called HealthSeed, and this is HealthSeed version 2. This is a, um, an important um, uh, product for schools to help them manage good indoor environments. They had a webinar on July 10th where they um, introduced this program to school administrators. It's something that you can get from the EPA from their website, uh, from epa.gov. So uh, for those of you who do work in schools or do consulting for schools, you'll definitely want to let them know that this is a new, a new product that they should be uh, utilizing. And then just one last thing. I want to give a, a big shout-out to Brian Beagle and Beagle, Beagle Enterprises of Rockville, Maryland, we had a little water loss here at the, uh, at the North <laughs> Army Communications Office two weeks ago. An air conditioning unit that uh, leaked some water, went under some wood floor, made it a little bit messy around here. And Brian and his crews came out with some IR cameras and dehumidifiers and good stuff, and they took a water loss and prevented it from becoming a mold problem, uh, dealt with it extremely well, extremely professionally, and in, in the context of today's guest, I'm glad to say that Safeco Insurance is doing right by me, and they're taking care of it. All right, hey, that was that was excellent. Brian was a good, uh, on the on the show way back. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah way back. Him. So yeah. anybody that wants to hear uh, some good restoration stuff, go back and download that one. Can we bring you back for the roundup? Will you be able to stick around? Absolutely. Great, thank you, Glenn. 
All right, before we get back to uh, Ron and Jody, we want to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right, we're going to unmute Dr. Wow, Ron, and Jody, and let's see if we have a comment from Dieter and uh, if he has any questions for Ron or Jody. Hello, Dieter. Hello? Hello, Dieter. Any comments or questions yeah. from the first half? Well, yeah, certainly. I do remember the wise words of my grandmother that always keep your eyes and ears open and you learn something. I didn't even know that insurance adjusters like this exist. I thought, you know, that you have to uh, fight the insurance companies with your hands tied to the back by yourself. <laughs> so uh, uh, that is interesting. On the other hand, um, I have two friends when, uh, with whom I play tennis when my right knee doesn't hurt. Uh, he had a water loss, and the insurance company, quote, took care of everything. They had a next-door neighbor. He had a water loss, and uh, the insurance company took care of that. I don't think either one of them had an adjuster, or, I mean, you know, an independent adjuster. So uh, it took a long time, and much longer than uh, they anticipated. Like, I think the initial uh, estimate was uh, uh, one month, and it turned out to be four months or something like that. But uh, maybe my question is, should I hire an independent adjuster, quote, in any case? A public adjuster, I guess. So that's a great question. And yep. also, I guess maybe I'd like to add one, because you brought up something that we um, wanted to touch on anyway, and it was how quickly people get paid. Um, by hiring a public adjuster should you always hire a public adjuster number one and if you do do you think you can get payment more quickly either one uh let's go with uh jody why don't we hear that nice uh female voice it helps to change from us gruff men well i mean there's always different situations on your insurance uh, claim okay there's uh you could be underinsured which meaning that you have a severe loss and you just don't have enough insurance to cover it okay in cases like that, um, we'd love to help you out, but unfortunately, sometimes there's things that we just can't do for you, okay? And the insurance company can pay or, or will pay your policy limits without us getting involved. I actually had uh, a loss that I went out on uh, last week where I met with the people a few times, and I spent hours reviewing their insurance policy for them to see if there's some way that I could help them out. And unfortunately, I couldn't. Um, they, they just had very little insurance, and they did have a very large claim so our services uh, were not able to help them out in that situation and then there's other times where it works the other way where you have a small loss and um, us getting involved and, and we tell you we let you know right right from the beginning if there's something that we just can't do to help you if it's not going to be beneficial but the majority of the time uh, we we can help you out okay we do spend a lot of time doing this like a um, and we can help out a lot of people, but there's, there's those extreme situations where hiring a public adjuster is not ideal for you or for us, and we let you know that, okay? Um, but we usually can uh, help you out in many situations. And can you it help? It's also possible. 
It's also possible in the event of a total loss that you might just look at the face amount of your policy and see what it's insured for and think that's all that you're going to get. But quite often in the fine print, they have something called guaranteed replacement costs, which may cause that dollar limit to actually uh, increase, and you may have certain uh, extensions of coverage that may be over and above that certain dollar amount. So I certainly think in a case like that, you ought to consult with a qualified licensed public adjuster, and as Jody indicated, uh, he or she would be fair as to where we're able to help, or in certain cases, of course, not help. What about demolition cost? Would that be uh, part of policy limit, or is that separate? That's, that's often one of the areas that is an extension of coverage that may exceed the overall insurance policy limit. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it uh, uh, may be covered under the general policy, but if you do exhaust the face amount of the policy limit, you may have an extension of coverage to uh, broaden that. What um, I'm curious, what is the fee structure? What is your fee structure? Is it uh, comparable to other public adjusters, and, and is that government regulated? Uh, it, it is uh, uh, regulated by certain states. Uh, New York State, we're capped at 12.5%. Uh, in Florida or Connecticut, we're capped at 10%. I would say that uh, most of our work is in the neighborhood of uh, 10% of the recovery. Of course, if it's a very large uh, million-dollar loss and above, then uh, you're certainly negotiable uh, uh, off that rate. But uh, quite often, people think we charge a third or 25 percent. Of course, it isn't anything like that. So, if we've got a loss, and you know, um, and they're paying 10 percent for for a public adjuster, um, don't they end up with less money than they really need to make themselves whole again after that loss? Is that um, absolutely not. Um, with without us being involved, uh, you won't. Or with us being involved, um, our fee will more than earn that back. For um, will more than earn that back. We'll never make the ins- the insured not whole. Okay, they'll always have enough money. Um, we'll more than get them enough plus our fee on top of that. And and one of the ways we can do that is because, as I said before, there are differences of opinion. But the loss that Jody was on, that she was just hired on earlier this week, woman has a, a, a plaster wall where she's going back with drywall. Well, of course, we all know that uh, uh, plasterboard or drywall is a lot cheaper than plaster. So she's entitled to the, to the cost of plaster for having it replaced. So you point out things like that, and it's not that hard for us to more than uh, justify our fee. Great. Cliff? Uh, can you give us an example of an in- interesting environmental claim that you've been involved with? Well, uh, we had one years ago to a, a farmhouse down in the rural area of uh, upstate New York where there was a question as to how many joists were burned in the basement. And we went out there to look at it, and I saw uh, these flies come into the house. They'd come in the house, and they'd die. And, you know, scores and scores of flies. And couldn't quite figure out what was happening. Well, we found out that the, that the person who owned the house had a chemical that they used called Saigon 2E. And during the course of the fire, this chemical uh, fell on the ground and it was spewed all over the concrete and everything. So we weren't quite sure how to treat it. We went to uh, Cornell University. They uh, 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 sent out one of their people, and they said that the shelf life of this chemical is only six weeks. So we said, okay, why don't we come back here in like eight weeks 
and see what happens. So we all go back out there again, and sure enough, the flies are going in the house and uh, are dying. So no one could quite figure out what was happening, and they said, well, why don't we give it more time? And I turned to the expert from the insurance company, and I said, if we gave you the keys to this house, we gave you the house, would you move in here with your wife and family? And he said, heck no. And after some discussion, we were able to convince the carrier that the house had to be torn down. You know, and, and we thought from a safety point of view that uh, that was in everyone's best interest. And uh, uh, that's what happened from a uh, relatively small fire, which led to other issues that were much greater. I'm curious. Uh, we're going to go to the roundup here in about three to five minutes. And before we do, we'd like to get into some of the more interesting projects that you've had what would be the most complicated project that you've had well i i'd have to say the most complicated one were the uh, uh carpet mills in georgia in the early 90s where scores of buildings in north georgia all collapsed uh, due to weight of ice and snow so if you could imagine the owner of one carpet mill have four of his buildings destroyed at the same time uh, was was a, uh, a very involved task. Uh, one loss that I more recently worked on with Jody was a uh, retailer that lost 40 stores as a result of a, a hurricane. And we had to do some investigation as to the policy, what was damaged by flood versus wind to separate that because there was certain, certain uh, language in, in uh, the insurance policy. But in order to work for one client that lost uh, 40 stores, and one afternoon is, is, is something like we've never seen before. And, of course, uh, we were also at, and Jody and I and others from NFA were very involved with losses as a result of the uh, 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 terrorist attack at 9-11. And to have losses like that were, were things that, that we've never seen before and hope to God that we, that we never see again. When there is a claim, um, who does the burden of proof fall on? The insured. The insured. Okay. The, uh, uh, the insured needs to prove the loss, but if it's an all-risk policy, this is very important, if it's a, what they call an open risk or an all-risk policy, where the policy covers all physical loss except, and you can prove you had physical damage to your property, then it's up to the insurance company to prove that one of the exclusions applies, whether it be earth movement or flood or or uh, uh, whatever it happens to be under an exclusion, rot, decay, things like that under the policy. So as long as you can prove that you had direct physical loss and you have an onerous policy, then the burden shifts to the insurance company to prove that the peril causing it is excluded. Are the services of NFA strictly limited to public adjusting, or do you also do general construction work and demolition work and cleaning and restoration work? Uh, we happen to think doing any of those is a conflict of interest. We're only in the business of providing services as public adjusters. As a result of that, we have estimators on staff, uh, accountants and lawyers and other areas of expertise. But in terms of us also doing the construction, uh, we've always felt that it's a conflict. Matter of fact, in Florida, it's against the law for a public adjuster to serve as a general contractor on the same engagement, and, 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 and that's rather heavily enforced. So uh, we are against 
uh, doing that, of course, in certain states is not allowed, and it's also uh, forbidden by our, our national association as well. And one thing that the uh, policyholder should uh, pay attention to is whether or not the insurance company brings in their own contractor. Um, you want to watch out for that because you don't want that happening because will, what will happen is the money will just exchange hands from the insurance company directly to the contractor. And the insured, who's actually, that's their money, is never seeing it, and it's just going from the insurance company to the contractor. So that's something that they need to watch out for. And if that does happen, um, that should set off some red flags. Let's go back to 9-11 for a moment. I, I guess, Ron, I don't know who dealt with that more, but I'm, I'm curious. Um, you know, that was a, a different type of, I guess, a different type of event than, than what we're used to. And now I guess there are exclusions on that. Is that happening in policies now? And were there, were there companies at the time that said, well, this is not a covered event? Well, uh, that didn't happen with 9-11. I, I haven't seen any insurance carrier try to exclude that under an all-risk or named peril policy. You have a, a, a multitude of, of perils occurring there at once, whether it be fire or collapse, which is going to be covered almost every, every policy. But now since then, they have terrorism exclusions or caps that if a, if a terrorist attack occurs, that may not be covered under some insurance policies there's a question as to whether or not they can exclude that from a fire policy in New York and other states where they have a statutory condition as to uh, the fire policy. But there are, but there are exclusions now under, under uh, quite a few policies for terrorist acts, and insurers have to buy that coverage under their policy at an additional premium. Okay, let's go to the roundup now, and we're going to bring everybody back in and go around the horn one time and see if there's any final questions. Let's go with uh, Dr. Wow first. Dieter, any comments or questions? Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 I do. Um, I mean, it's not a question, it's a comment. You know, I get, you know, I, I have my cars insured, my house is insured, my boat is insured, and all of that. And uh, the first page is the premium, and I have to pay, you know, $500 there and $1,000 there and what have you. And I think I'm one like you know, 99.9% .9 of the insured people, we don't read all that, that you know, the, the other six pages is behind it. How many and, pages did you say? <laughs> <laughs> six, like in six, like in one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah. And uh, I don't do that. It's the same thing if you're on the computer. Do you accept it or don't you accept something? You know, and there are like 12 pages of small print that, you know, do you accept uh, uh, that whether when you're talking to Mr. Gates? Anyway, I, um, I mean, I can see that there may very well be situations where somebody ought to be there to interpret all those pages that I don't read. 
And fortunately, I have not been in that situation. And um, But I, like I said earlier, I didn't even know that people like this do exist as such. I thought you had to hire, you know, quote, a lawyer who may or may not even know about all these intricacies of insurance policies. It's a good, good. One of the things I wanted to say, though, is it's, it's not just the pages that you can read, because how do you know the insurance companies spend on what you've seen in, in uh, 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 prior accident and instances, and what you're able to do as to how you're able to have various aspects of it read. But also, if you're only looking at six pages, you don't have the whole policy, because I assure you that the, that the uh, standard homeowner's policy, or especially a business policy, is going to be many, many more pages than that. Boy, I better stop you right there. I'm going to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank yeah, you. I know. I mean, it is one of those things. In fact, I have, the other day we had a thunderstorm where I live here in Pittsburgh, and there are trees, uh, and it was thundering and lightning, I mean, all over the place. And there are trees in the backyard. One of those trees could be hit by lightning, and it goes on my uh, shed out there, which certainly wouldn't be catastrophic. You know, my lawnmower would be gone, and the shed is going to be gone. The question is, would my homeowner's uh, insurance pay for that? I don't know. And I have a tree in my backyard. If that one would be hit by lightning or wind or a hurricane and fall into my house, it would do damage. I don't know whether I'm uh, insured about it. In fact, in, a, in, in 15 minutes, I'm going to call my insurance company <laughs> and ask them the same question. <laughs> Jody, can well, you If I could help, if the, if the tree damages the house from any one of those events, then it's going to be covered. But the tree itself would only be covered if it's damaged by lightning. If the tree is damaged by wind, the removal of the tree is covered, but not the tree itself. No whereas kidding. Dur whereas during a, a lightning storm, if you're able to examine the tree and see that it was felled because of, of, of lightning rather than wind, then the loss to the tree itself would be covered under your own. Yeah, I don't give a damn about the tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's... I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about my shed in my house. But that tree's tree money. Goes, I can grow another one. But, but that tree is worth some money, I assume. Is that correct, Jody? I guess so. Yeah, if it's, if it's walnut, it's very expensive. <laughs> okay. Cliff? Um, I guess what I'd like to ask uh, Jody is what do you know about homeowners coverage that the average person doesn't know and like what kind of tip could you give me in terms of a coverage that I should buy or you know you know something that's missed commonly standard three um, homeowners coverage would be well there's actually four so the standard three would be the dwelling which is the structure of your home and then also the personal property or contents, which is all your personal items in the home. Mm -hmm. And then your additional living expenses, which is um, all the expenses that you'll incur if you're not able to live in your home and you have to stay someplace else, a hotel or temporary housing or anything like that. You do want to make sure that you have adequate coverage. And all that information will be on the first page, which is called the declaration page of your policy. And you might want to take a glance at that, make sure that you have enough coverage for your home and all your personal items inside of your house. And also one thing that you want to look at um, that's very important is whether or not you have a replacement cost coverage policy or an actual cash value. 
um, that's something that you'd want to look into your policy as well. There's other areas, um, additional coverages on top of your policy limit that you may or may not have. Um, usually that's extra, uh, an extra premium to purchase, um, like guaranteed replacement costs. Um, there's debris removal, um, other areas inside of your policy where you may have additional coverage. And for us to tell you um, an answer, we don't know unless we were, were to look at in particular policies. Okay. I think that is, am, am I still Go on? ahead, Dieter, yeah. Yeah, this, this is interesting. This is a, a, something very similar happened to a friend of mine. He didn't even know about it. He had not read the, the other 12 pages. Uh, he lived in a house uh, which was built in the 1930s, and of course the electrical system then uh, does not match the uh, the code of today. And he didn't know, but he's, there was a clause in there that if there was a damage, there was a water damage, that whatever had to be rebuilt had to be done to uh, um, code uh, the code of today. And maybe that is really something that somebody ought to look into whether the, uh, or is that extra and i think those are all those little things which hopefully we never ever need but if you need them you you know you, you ought to be aware of it is that a standard clause ron uh, usually on a standard homeowner's policy no that would be an additional the, yeah, that's that's what i heard later on i'm obviously not an expert in that but uh, he said Peter said i didn't even know that that i was covered for that interesting Let's go to Glenn yeah. Feldman and see if uh, Glenn has a final question. I do. I have a question, and it's related to my own experience just a couple weeks ago. We had a water loss in our building. Um, I called the water restoration firm the, the minute we discovered it. Uh, they started procedures immediately. I didn't even call my insurance agent until several hours after they had dehumidifiers going and, and, and identified the source of the problem. Um, the, the insurance uh, agent put in a claim. The claims agent called me. Uh, she was in California. And she said, you know, I don't really have a, a local adjuster. I'm going to have to try to find one to come out. And I said, well, listen, hey, you know, the, the, the restoration's already been done. I got a drywall guy and a flooring guy who are getting ready to give me quotes this week. And uh, I have a bunch of photos. And she said, well, in that case, just send me your photos and uh, send me the invoice from the restorer and send me the estimates when you get them from the floor guy and the drywall guy and it's taken care of and it's been going very very smoothly and easily is my experience do you think um rare or is it the norm for what you what you have you know encounter with, with the people you work with i would think if the loss is small and rather uh contained then quite often insurance companies have what they call desk adjusters where it's a lot less expensive for them to try to settle it over the phone, you know, using that media rather than a dispatcher and adjuster. So if the loss is contained and it is relatively modest in size, then dealing with a uh, um, desk adjuster is uh, fine. This, this will be, I would say, less than $10,000 at the end of the day. Is sure. that considered small? Yes, it is, yes. Okay, well, I've got to thank you, Glenn, and thank you, Dieter, for joining us. But uh, I've got a quick text question from a listener, so I'll just uh, go to that. How do I come? How do I become a public adjuster? Jody, um, it depends on which state uh, she's requesting that information for. Each state has its different own requirements and different requirements. 
Uh, for New York State, you do have to take a um, examination. You do have to pass that. There are other requirements about age, and then there's also continuing education requirements. Uh, for New York State in particular, uh, we have two years. Um, every two years, we do have to fulfill 15 continuation or continuing educational credits. Um, so that's for New York State. But each state has their own uh, requirements by the state that is regulated by the insurance department. Okay. Well, if you, me, if you ask me that question, I was going to say, go to work for your father. <laughs> that seems to be the uh, the way that um, the papas get into the business, huh? Excellent. Well, I want to uh, first of all say thanks to this week's guests, Ron and, and Jody Papa, for joining us here. It's been a fascinating week on IAQ Radio. I want to thank our, our uh, sponsors in a moment here, but uh, stick around. We've got a, an announcement on next week's guest, too before we go. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And one question we did forget to ask, Ron, is there anything you'd like to add, and can you give us some contact information? Sure. If anybody uh, wants to contact us, it's, uh, go to our website at nfa.com. That's N as in Nancy, F as in Frank, A as in Apple.com. And also we're members of the National Association of Public Insurance Adjusters, which is NAPIA.com. Great. Anything we missed that you'd like to add? No, uh, I, I would think all aspects of it were uh, um, uh, uh, handled rather well, and I think this is rather uh, informative for everybody. Well, great. I want to thank both you and Jody for joining us again. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure. The wingman, Chris Boisel. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, Glenn Fellman for IE Connections What News, but uh, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We set a record last week on downloads. Thank you all. Please come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Who's the guest next week, Oh, Chuck? Kevin Kennedy from uh, Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. We're going to do the second part of our four-part series on home health assessments. Thanks again. We'll see you next week on IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.